Well, we come now to the Word, and this morning I'm going to be reading a passage that you may not think is, is that related to Christmas, but you'll see. Uh, it's from the, the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, and it is going to be re- I'm going to be reading chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, and then verse 16. Listen now to the Word of God. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, this is the king David, the king said to, the Nathan, to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure, shall be made, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, guide us as we consider your word and, and Lord, work in our hearts and our lives and our understanding of ourselves, our world, of you, of you, and of your son, Jesus. Guide us, I pray now, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the, the biggest issues in society, in any society, and certainly today, is to know who to look to. Who is, who's the leader? 
who's the one who can fix things and, and figure things out and get things done? Tell us what's right, what's best, what's true, what to, what to do now to make things better. Who's, who's in charge? And sometimes that, that person comes from the votes or the positions or the title. Sometimes it's, it's personality. Sometimes it's everyone just knows who that person is. It's, it's an innate authority that they have. This, this morning and tonight, we are going to celebrate Christmas. We'll read the same Scripture passages that we read every year and sing those familiar songs. And in, in very many of those songs of Jesus and in almost all of those Scripture passages of the birth of Jesus, you see the name of David over and over again. The very first words of the New Testament in Matthew 1.1 begin with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The first thing, the son of David. And when angels come to announce Jesus' birth, they say, unto you is born this day in the city of David. Bethlehem is the city of David, where David was born, just literally a stone's throw from Jerusalem. All of this, is, all of this part of the Gospels are about who Jesus is. And the fact is, unless you understand David, you won't understand Jesus. David is the king. He's the king who, who reigned a thousand years before Jesus. And he is the king that Jesus succeeds, the promised one. So, all this part is about who Jesus is. And unless you understand David, you, you don't understand Jesus. And unless you understand this very specific moment in David's life that we read about in 2 Samuel, you won't understand Jesus. So, so we're going to go through this moment so that you can understand Jesus and understand David. And by that, you can know the difference Jesus makes in our own lives and in our world now. What makes him the one we all look to in, in the middle of all these challenging days and, and forever? So this passage is, is set in a particular moment of David's life, a, a key moment. For generations, for hundreds of years, the people of Israel have been living through conflict and strife and incredible drama from slavery in Egypt and, and a dramatic deliverance through the Red Sea and, and the wilderness and into the promised land, but it's taken all the way to now before they've been able to call the promised land truly their own. 300 to 400 years they've been on that journey, but finally David, their, their second king, has brought their kingdom to a place of stability, to a place of peace. From, from the bondage and oppression of the surrounding nations like the Philistines and the Midianites and all the surrounding powers, they haven't been able to rest secure as a people until just 
now. Now, David has been able to stabilize the, the political and the economic and the civil environment. And things are finally really looking good for Israel. And he was the one that the people of Israel looked to, and he was successful. He had the house of a king made of cedar to prove it. It's made from the cedar trees of Lebanon. You can imagine how it smelt. Smelt like the house of a king. So finally, he can turn his mind to other things, and he turns his mind to God, and he's grateful. And he, and he thinks that while he's grateful to have been taken care of, what about the tabernacle of God? That, that singular item that identifies the Israelites by their relationship with God, for it symbolizes in, in, in their minds that literally brings God's presence among them. But the tabernacle's a box. It's roughly the size of the communion table, probably even a little smaller than that. It, what, it, it's 300, it's been living in a tent for 300 to 400 years. A 300 and 400-year-old tent, first of all, miraculous. Second of all, it, it had to be a little threadbare, maybe a little musty. And it seems right that she, he should have, they should have a place for this a glorious temple. But rather than just run off and, and build this thing, he does the right thing, and he checks in with God through the, Nathan, the prophet Nathan. And at first, Nathan does what any good pastor does when the, when the richest person in town asks if they can build a church for them. Sure. But then in verse 4 and 5, God speaks to Nathan and tells him that he doesn't want David building him a temple. And then he gives him two reasons, two reasons that he's not going to let David build the temple. God's reasons for not letting David build the temple. The first is, it's kind of based on an incarnational principle. Verses 6 and 7 describe what this is. For all those years, God never asked for a temple to be built for him. Rather, by his presence in the tabernacle, he went where the people went. He lived like what the people lived like. He lived the same way. And there was no kingdom security where they settled into comfort or rest or permanent homes. They were living in tents. So God put himself among the people and experienced what they experienced. And while they were getting there, it will be another generation before they are fully there. The people aren't there yet. So neither will you build me a house to live in. Not yet. That's, that's the image of the incarnation. God with and among his people. That's the incarnational principle. God goes where the people go. But the next of God's explanations for waiting is a grace principle. Verses 8 through 10 paint a vivid picture of this. All through the years of living with the people of Israel and through David's life and rise to power and stability, God's hand was behind it all. 
And David went from a kid out in the field with the sheep to the king leading the nation of God's people. And God is saying, that is my work. This incredibly significant is this incredibly significant thing is the opposite of the way that everything happened for all the surrounding nations, the opposite of the way that they operated. Every other religion is conditional. Pharaoh Thutmose builds a magnificent temple to the god of Amun-Ra, and for that, God will bless him and the nation. So he thinks. If we do something wonderful for God, he, of course, will bless us. If we do something like build a temple or any deal that we might make with God, David appears to just about cross this line from this, this line away from simply trusting God to doing something so that God would owe him. We'd much rather feel like we could have some power or control in our relationship with God. But this God will not have that. He wants to make it very clear he did all this for David and the people without asking for a temple for himself. It is pure grace. And he makes it even clearer what he's doing. What, what David was promising to build a house for God, and God says, no. God then provides what Tim Keller calls a counter-promise. God says, you're not going to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. And this house that I build for you will last forever. Now, what's he talking about? Clearly, he, he's not talking about a building. And to the Christian mind, he's not talking about a nation. The forever house of David. This is the culmination of the whole plot line of Scripture. We've, we've outlined it often, and it should be at the front of our consciousness all the time. Creation, fall, redemption. That's the, that's the outline of the Bible story, of, of the world's story. God made everything, and he called it good, and he called people very good, and God instilled us and all creation with inherent value when he made us. But we sought to create value for ourselves apart from God, to eat our own fruit, to go our own way, to, to say for ourselves what's right and wrong, and it all begins to fall apart. And sin and death come into the world, and, and forever is now impossible. But here, in this house, this throne, the reign of David's dynasty, forever is back. And this forever house of David is the redemption of God's people. A line from Psalm 89 speaks of this hope and promise and is reflected in so many others in Scripture. Psalm 89 says, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. 
a king will emerge from David's line who will, who will reign, literally. Not just a literary device, but literally forever. This means he will be the one to overcome the fall and sin and death. And when, we, and when we look back at the incarnational principle that we started with, he's the one who perfectly and completely fulfills it. God with his people right where we are now. And he feels, fulfills also that grace principle. We didn't earn this favor. He didn't come to redeem us and reign over us because we're worthy of it or because he owes us because we're so good, or because we are such good nation builders or churchgoers or church builders. He came and saved us and reigned over all forever because he loves us. And now Jesus is the forever king over all in the line of David. And he's the king of justice, of righteousness, grace, love, peace, and joy. So, what? What do we do with this? It's Christmas, and, and we're, we're celebrating the birth of a child. Babies are born all the time. What's special about this one born so long ago, so far away, that means so much to all of us to get us here on a Sunday morning and a, maybe even a Sunday evening. What does it mean that he is the forever king? Tim Keller lists, has a list of six things that I'm going to run through quickly. But the first is the most important. The kingship of Jesus means hope. Hope for all the world. In evangelicalism, we most often focus on Jesus as Savior. He's, he's saved each of us, and that, that's a worthy focus for all that we can give it. But we tend to think of that as an act that affects us just individually. Jesus being king forever affects the whole world, the whole cosmic universe. He comes into this world, this material world, and transforms it and renews it, redeems it. And we as Christians are not just about God's work in our hearts. We are about his work in the neighborhood, our, our community, our nation, the world. Kings bring rest for their people. That's stability. The rest of justice and peace. The rest of prosperity and a, a good place to live. And now, since Jesus is kings, there is certain hope, not just for my salvation, but for the redemption of all the world and the fallen universe. This is our hope in the king, in the line of David. Secondly, the kingship of Jesus means service. You see, you see the nature of this king. He takes on himself the needs of the people. And we, his subjects, reflect his nature, the nature of his rule, his love for his people upon ourselves. He became poor so that we might become rich, not in money, but in life. The service and hope of Jesus as king are 
utterly visible in the work that so many of you participate in as you care for people in real ways, in your families, in this church, in, in the community, caring for those who have nothing to offer you but the opportunity to care for them. I, I, I think of the, the tree in the narthex and the notes with the needs that you can provide. That's just one simple way of serving, but this year I've gotten to know you, and over and over again, I've gotten to see your hearts of service and see it as a, a, a reflection of God's reign in your lives. Thirdly, the kingship, the forever kingship of Jesus means obedience. Kings are in control and his subjects obey. And, and so many try Christianity, but they don't want to cede control to God. And, and when asked to do things, to be things, they don't want to do or be, they just move on. But that's not understanding the reign of God in our lives and in the world. We don't obey conditionally. If God will give in to my will, there's no ifs in obedience. And as I've heard many times, the hardest thing to give to God is in. Fourthly, the forever reign of Christ means trust. We can give in readily because we trust God's reign even more than our own wishes or, or desire to, to control. Martin Luther understood that worry was a form of trying to rule the God, to, to rule the world rather than letting God do it. And his friend, the great theologian Philip Melanchthon, was a big worrier. And Luther used to come to Melanchthon, put his, arm on, his hands on his shoulder, look him in the eye and say, not just stop worrying, he'd say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Stop trying to rule the world, Philip, and you'll stop worrying. You can't worry and let God be the king. They just don't go together. I think worry is a little tougher than that, but underlying it all. Fifthly, Jesus being the king means expectation. God is doing amazing things in your life. Don't miss them. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, had another great hymn verse. He, he said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power as such, none can ever ask too much. Expect to see the glory of a king. And finally, if Jesus is king, it means joy. I, I remember a simple comment from an older gentleman who had been a counselor to, to many, many people, and he simply noted that so few people experience true joy. Knowing this forever king is the first place where it can be known, especially here at this time of year. In, in this last day 
of waiting to celebrate his coming and his coming again, we see who he is, our Savior, and the king in the line of David who comes, redeems in love, and reigns over all forever. Let's pray. Lord, you spoke this to David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And the people of Israel waited. And then, Lord, you came. And the word spread (laughs) beyond Israel to all the world that the one true king, the one we could all look to, has come. Lord, as we celebrate in the next 24 hours, as we celebrate your birth, may we just catch a glimpse of the fullness of of what's happening here. That the one we can count on has come and is here. And Lord, help us to trust you. Thank you, Lord, for your word that that you wove this story through generations over thousands of years that we may know you and live in hope and as subjects to the one who reigns in heaven forever. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray all this in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.